0: Hi, I'm Ellen Alexandroff, and I'm the director of the Global Summetry Project. The activity of the Global Summetry Project you can find at globalsummetryproject.com. There you will see the work we're doing on China and the West Dialogue, Global Summitry itself, Global Order, Agenda 2030, and of course it includes work we're doing through three podcasts, series, articles. And videos. It is my great pleasure today to be bringing into the virtual studio uh, David Victor. This is a summit dialogue series, episode 26 on the consequences of COP26 and the role of technology in the transition to a low carbon world. David is a global thought leader on climate change policy and the energy systems transformation that is required uh, to produce a low-carbon world. David is a professor of innovation and public policy at the School of uh, Global Policy and Strategy, University of California at San Diego, and he holds there the Center for Global Transformation, endowed chair in innovation and public policy. So, let me bring into the virtual studio our good colleague, David Victor. So, uh, welcome, uh, David, back to the virtual studio to talk about all things COP26, COP26, and then on. Well, it's really terrific to be with you, Alan. David, you, uh, you attended Glasgow, uh, COP26. Um, in fact, I heard you speak with uh, David Dollar um, at uh, his podcast, uh, Dollar and Cents, just, I think, prior uh, to Glasgow. And you seemed, you know, relatively upbeat, all things considered. Uh, now you've been to Glasgow and uh, you spent time there. What What did you, what sense did you get of the mood in Glasgow? And what did you feel was kind of the, you know, where are we kind of thing?
1: Yeah. So let me first speak just personally. The movie mm-hmm. was, people were thrilled to be at an event with other people. <laughs>
0: and, uh, you know, for a lot
1: of people, this was the first time that they had traveled. I'd, I'd been on the road at, uh, for a few months, but not nothing you know, like our pre-pandemic world. That mm-hmm. was pretty extraordinary. You know, there's daily testing and register your tests, a lot of attention to detail. There were protests. There were people dressed like a banana protesting in favor of nuclear power. There were other people dressed in other ways, protesting and for or against other things. So it's kind of a normal event. And I think that normalcy or, or some semblance of normalcy was actually pretty exciting. In terms of the substance, I, I was frankly pretty thrilled about Glasgow. I, one way to think about this is that Paris marked the end of a long time of folks doing things that just had no chance of really working Kyoto Protocol, integrated treaties, things like that, marked the end of that. And a new hypothesis was laid out in Paris, which was decentralize the process of experimentation, more pledges, Mm -hmm. pledge and review in effect. And um, that was a hypothesis. I thought it was the right idea. And I've been in favor of that approach for a long, long time. What was different about Glasgow is you now see the hypothesis working. You see lots of pledges. You see some areas where the pledge is really being put into reality. The private sector was out uh, in force, especially finance. We'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. But when you put it all together, it's a really pretty extraordinary story. So I was very pleased.
0: Okay. Um, Well, as you mentioned, the Paris uh, Agreement, 2015, we're six years on. Um, Have we now concluded... uh, one of the missing pieces, the rule book, and have members resolve the double counting issue with respect to uh, carbon trading. I mean, are those issues now behind us or wh- where are we on that?
1: Well, formally we have agreement on, on essentially the rule book. We had agreement on the most of the rule book uh, a few years ago. Okay. Except for things like the double counting question and carbon trading, a couple of other things that's now sorted out. So as a diplomatic matter, it's tidied up. I think most of that is frankly irrelevant. Um, the rule book is designed in a process that requires consensus agreement. And so not surprisingly, the rule book contains stuff like the procedures for evaluating the individual pledges and the so-called nationally determined contributions, the procedures for stock taking, the procedures for uh, double counting or avoiding double counting and international emissions trading. Right. Like all that stuff is there and it reflects the lowest common denominator. So it's probably better that you don't have the zombie walking around that isn't agreed but it's really kind of irrelevant to the real areas of progress. Take, take the double counting question on international emissions trading. Yep. Nobody, no country was sitting there waiting to create an international emissions trading program to give credits to other countries, <laughs> waiting for permission from the UN system mm-hmm. through the Article Six negotiations at rule book. Right. They often did it, frankly, they mostly did it badly, but because they've done it badly, doesn't mean that now that the Article Six agreement is in place, they're gonna do it better these are kind of fundamental issues. And and I, I think most of the kind of hype around finally we have agreement on the rule book is just completely misplaced.
0: Really? And so, are, but are you concerned about things like double counting? Uh, you, yeah, know, yeah, aside the, you know, the, the other, that's an issue.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm concerned about double counting in particular because in some sense, the backbone for international emissions trading is in effect, a kind of international offsets program where you have jurisdictions right, right. that have caps on emissions, and then you get credits for doing things in other jurisdictions that may not have caps, or their caps may not be very tight, or their administrative procedures may not be very good. Whatever the reasons are, in effect, you have, you have two different kinds of money that are trading at the margin. And think of this as that the challenge is really no different from the challenge of creating a new kind of a new kind of currency. And so the record so far has just been atrocious. And the record with international offsets has been mostly fraud, Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge volume, very rapidly growing volumes at very low prices. Prices are indicative of quality as in any cool. system of money. Sure. And so there are people, there are companies, mainly companies and in, in, interestingly enough in the voluntary market more than the compliance market that are finding ways to create high quality offsets. But those are very expensive and those markets are very thin and bespoke. Mm. Whereas the bulk markets, which is really what Article 6 is speaking to, those, those markets um, are mostly full of garbage. I see. All
0: right. That's slightly disheartening to say the least. Well, um, that, that
1: I think it's slightly disheartening because the I think the folks who believe you're going to wave a magic market wand at this problem, internalize the externalities, firms are suddenly going to wake up and say, oh, well, if I think you know 20 steps down the road at this carbon price and I do this investment and that guy does that and so on, then voila. We'll, we'll all mean, be better off. <laughs> exactly. And the, the record so far is we're actually making a lot of progress. We're mm-hmm. making progress more through industrial policy I see. It's industrial policy that's changing facts on the ground, pushing technologies out. And then there's a role for markets in this. I think taxes perform better than cap and trade systems for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, Danny Cullenward and I just wrote a book about, about that subject called Making Climate Policy Work. But the, the role that the markets are playing is once the technologies have been kind of proven and firms know roughly what things cost and how they perform and so on, then the markets help optimize. But most of the really deep cuts in emissions that are needed Aren't just kind of optimizing across known technologies. They're they're really transforming uh, whole industries.
0: Okay, so new new approaches, new technologies, rather yeah. than. Okay, uh, well, I want to get to that in a moment, but let me first uh, get to the other question, which is the finance part of it, not the cap and trade stuff. But um, we heard this announcement, and it was tied, and it is tied to the race to net zero. Uh, and the announcement was by Mark Carney, who was uh, formerly the uh, Bank of England chair. And before that, he was the uh, Bank of Canada chair um, uh, on the central bank there uh, here. Uh, and this new announcement was the so-called GFONs, right, which is the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. And we have banks, asset managers, all the elements on the financial side, pension funds, insurance companies, more and more than 45 countries, total resources, at least in in abstractly, $130 trillion. Um, And um, these folks are committed, they say, to using science based guidelines to work towards um, mobilizing trillions of dollars to be invested towards net zero operation. So how seriously should we take this? Or was this, you know, just a lot of the pleasant, but not very uh, f- important um, financial uh, announcement?
1: I think we should take it as an indicator that the finance world knows they need to be much more serious about this problem, okay. and they're under a huge amount of pressure. Most of that pressure right now is focused on dealing with the risks associated with transition from high-emission industries to low-emission industries, what's often called transition risk. Mm-hmm. My own research from a team that I've led at the Brookings Institution for the last couple of years has suggested that bigger financial risks are actually what are called physical risks. So they're the they're the risk that, uh, for example, investors in municipal debt who are, are investing in something and in, in an instrument that would be used to finance uh, infrastructure, the infrastructure right. will become, it will be destroyed by climate change or whole communities would empty out. And in effect, the tax base would, would, would be removed as a result of the impacts of climate change. Those kinds of physical risks, I think are actually a bigger deal and the market knows less about them. But all mm-hmm. that said, what you're seeing, I think from the Carney announcement is good aspirations. And for the most part, no clue what to do? So you have these giant numbers, 130 trillion dollars. Eye right. numbers. Any club that's 130 trillion dollars big is a club that doesn't have very high barriers to entry. And so, to get into the club, you need to say, "Hey, you know, I'm worried." And so that's that's a start. Um, I think that announcement was a bit unfortunate in the sense that people confused stock and flow. Um, the, the whole two weeks of Glasgow, because that announcement came right at the beginning, it the did. whole two weeks of Glasgow, everyone's looking around for the $130 trillion. You know, I couldn't <laughs> find it. It wasn't, certainly wasn't in my suitcase. <laughs> uh, and, and so it was it was kind of – it created, a, frankly, a bit of a distraction because there are real issues being discussed, including diplomatic issues where you have to get to agreement, essentially consensus agreement about finance and uh, in particular public sector finance and those those kinds of issues were basically completely orthogonal to the 130 trillion number that Mark Carney talked about i think we're seeing more innovation in the financial sector in smaller groups you're seeing uh, mm-hmm. some smaller asset managers who are now either scrubbing their whole portfolios of things that are inconsistent with a low carbon world the more sophisticated ones are trying to figure out what their exposures are physically they're also trying to figure out how to grade companies, and even in uh, whole sovereign uh, uh, financial instruments for their climate-related exposures. And, you know, they've learned it's hard, but that's the case.
0: And we we do see, to be fair, we do see standards beginning to emerge from various institutions like the ISSB and various other institutions which are saying, okay, this is how you have to deal in accounting terms with this problem. And that seemed to me to be pretty concrete, although that wasn't related to the G Fund's uh, announcement.
1: Yeah, I'm, I think some of the standard setting has been helpful. In particular, I think the standard setting around procedures, for example, a lot of the central bankers are getting together to figure out how they do stress tests in their economies. Yes. To identify where risks may be, may, may, may sit now that the United States is run by adults um, we're doing a whole lot on the finance front uh, in the in the public sector, looking not just at stress tests, but a variety of other financial related risks. Europeans are doing something similar to a lesser degree in the rest of the world, but now we're seeing more of the rest of the world engage. That kind of standard, not necessarily standardization, but coordination, I think has been really helpful. I do think we're going to learn that as we start to look at the actual risks associated with associated with particular instruments, that mm-hmm. standardization is going to be hard. Mm-hmm. because the methods for assessing those risks are so diverse and frankly, kind of untested right now.
0: Okay. Well, let me get to one other uh, financial issue. And this is more on the public side, of course, for a long time now, I guess it goes back to 2009. There was agreement that the developed world, the established powers were going to transfer hundred billion dollars a year to help the developing countries, um, uh, you know curb emissions and mitigation measures in particular uh, and um, that was supposed to be done by 2020 well it didn't get done by 2020 and they've now pushed out the calendar date to 2023 and in addition at COP26 we note that the EU and the US insisted that there be no new fund uh, for loss and damage uh, in effect compensation for developed to developing countries Um, particularly small island states, for the cumulative impact, historical impact of carbon emissions um, on the developing countries. Uh, You know, is this um, going to have a serious, I mean, uh, is it the the case that the developing world is simply not going to be willing to provide that kind of financing on a consistent basis uh, to the developing world?
1: Yeah, so a lot, lot of moving parts there, but they all speak yeah. to, com- to a common narrative, which is the view, correct, that there needs to be some transfer of resources from the richer right. countries, financial to the resources, poorer right. countries, right, um, and resources a variety of variety types, of which the financial resources are the easiest to count, and that are the most visible. Although, frankly, over the long term, the technological transfers, which probably won't be transfers, they'll be diffusion for the most part, normal market interactions that's what's going to be crucial because this ultimately is a global problem. So a lot of the innovation that's going on right now, not just in the industrialized countries, there's tremendous innovation going on in China and parts of India and and on and on and on, but there are these pockets of innovation, but we ultimately need to have a kind of ultimately a global approach here. I think the, um, there's always been a degree of elastic accounting associated with the size of the transfers, the $100 billion number, which goes way back to 2009. Yep. It's kind of stuck there. It was reaffirmed in Paris, 2015, reaffirmed again, and pushed out a little bit here. We got to maybe about $80 billion, depending on how you do the accounting. And frankly, it's kind of shameful because while there are important questions to be raised about how well is the money being spent? Um, <laughs> is it the right to do this through the public sector and direct transfers as opposed to other mechanisms? All important debates, but this is a highly visible number, and it's kind of crucial to the legitimacy of the institution overall, which ultimately has to hold everybody together. Um, So I think that part of it has been shameful and disappointing. Um, Two other points about this, though. One Mm -hmm. is there's been a lot, not enough attention to the allocation of those funds, in particular between controlling emissions, so-called mitigation, Mm -hmm. and adaptation. Right now, the accounting... The county, the county suggests that about a quarter of the money has gone to adaptation, to helping oh, okay. folks deal with, uh, with the impacts. And okay. the rest of it's going to mitigation. And I think the, the reality is that the places where these resources are most needed Are the poorer countries that are really on the front lines that frankly their emissions aren't that high with the exception Mm -hmm. of those involved in land use and deforestation but their exposure to physical impacts of climate change is extremely high so there needs to be a rebalancing Mm -hmm. of the resources in the direction of adaptation and management of the impacts and not just controlling emissions i think the whole loss and damage discussion was kind of predictable and is never really going to go anywhere because it's it's um, the way it's framed is, <clears throat> is it could be kind of an unlimited blank check. The industrialized countries don't want an unlimited blank check. Developing countries you know, might want an unlimited blank check if somebody's offering an unlimited bank check. It costs nothing to run around and talk about. I want an unlimited blank check. And so it's kind of one of these theatrical performances that happens uh, every round. And um, I don't know how you move beyond it except to kind of say we got to keep looking at this issue over time and it just kind of sits there. Frankly, if the industrialized countries did a better job of, de- of delivering on the more concrete promises they made they make, they would have a better, they would do, do better in managing some of these other um, kind of theatrical sideshows.
0: Now, let me turn to technology because I know it's an issue that you've long um, uh, focused on. So, um, uh, you've suggested for a long time now that uh, for deep decarbonization to occur, there needs to be a rapid adoption of new niche technologies. Where do you see the critical ones uh, are currently from your perspective?
1: Yeah, so it's a really important issue. And, you know, there have been a series of studies that have been done that suggest that maybe half the technologies we need don't really exist right now. Right. When I look closely at those studies, I think they're actually understating the scale of the challenge because the technologies that do exist, that they say exist, you like solar power, yes, solar power is there, costs have come way down, bravo. But the more success you have in deploying solar power, the more the technological challenge shifts. Which is an integration challenge and a systems management challenge because you've got to put the solar power on grids and keep the grid reliable cost effective and that's a frontier question where kind of we don't really know we have a bunch of ideas and categories of solutions but we don't have specific solutions where we know how they work in all the variety of different contexts so the technological challenge here i think is is just really really enormous but i think your question points to the really really key topic which is there's a lot of things you can do technologically you know, for long-distance shipping, ammonia turns out to be probably be very, uh, very important. For steel manufacturing, other kinds of, like direct reduction uh, of of iron ore seems to be very important and on and on and on each sector has its own bespoke set of technologies Mm -hmm. that matter. And that's why there's a growing attention to the need for a sector by sector approach, where in effect, you do a kind of industrial policy on every sector where the technologies and the strategies and and the clubs of countries and firms that are willing to go first, they all vary sector by sector. But there's a handful of technologies that really matter for everything. Electricity, the area where there's almost uniform agreement among energy analysts is that an economy that decarbonizes an economy that electrifies. So electric, now there's uncertainty about how much electrification do we have and so on. Electricity is crucially important. Mm-hmm. Uh, electricity in effect is an energy carrier. So you make the energy in a clean way and typically central power plants of some one form, and then you move it by wire. Uh, the other big energy carrier that is, looks very exciting is hydrogen. Hydrogen will be easier to store right now. It's very expensive to make easier to store a lot of uncertainties there hydrogen is particularly interesting because it's very useful in, in a lot of the applications that are hard to electrify where you need high heat or you want to make chemical reactions directly with the hydrogen and then the last technology that's going to be crucially important is carbon capture uh, and storage in part because carbon capture and storage so-called so ccs can be used in the lead what's plausibly the leading low-cost method for making hydrogen which is so-called um uh, with steam reforming of natural gas, where you use natural gas as the feedstock, and then you capture the CO two before it goes up in the atmosphere. CCS can be used in power plants for the grid, and CCS is probably going to be very important for a variety of, uh, of other technologies and some key in, in some key sectors, the steel, especially in cement, and also in direct air capture, where you're capturing carbon dioxide mm-hmm. and putting it underground. So, uh, more or less, the three places where you've got technologies that are you know more important and the other technologies are those three clusters
0: okay because i i i wanted to raise with you the, this uh, opinion piece that was written but i don't know if you know him uh Jul- julian allwood um mm-hmm. who's at uh, cambridge i guess he's a professor of engineering yeah. and environment at cambridge there and he wrote this uh, opinion piece in the ft and he said technology will not solve the problem of climate change and then he went on to write that Climate summit in Glasgow, this is pretty stark, was a failure because it was predicted on on the fiction that technology will solve the problem of climate change. Technology, he says, will not solve the problem because it cannot be scaled sufficiently in time. And there he then points to CCS, which you've raised. He points to electrification. He calls it an electricity right, which is non-carbon emitting energy. Uh, obviously, um, uh, or biomass, I guess. And he concludes the total demand for those resources required by the plans discussed at COP26 cannot be met. So what's your reaction to his view?
1: Well, I have a lot of respect for Julian's work. Um, okay. Work on Zanke diagrams and industrial organizations. And things like that. In this case, I think he's completely wrong <laughs> on pretty on pretty much every front. Really. First of all, the predicate of Glasgow was not the technology is going to solve this. Actually, a yeah, lot of people yeah. in Glasgow want to have dietary changes, behavioral changes. I mean, Glasgow was like everybody there with a different point of view and 25,000 <laughs> folks and, then, and you're going to have 25,000 opinions. And so not surprising kind of degree of, degree of chaos there. Yep. Um, so I think that actually was incorrect. The second area where I think the analysis is wrong <clears throat> is, is um, around the goals. This process is designed to create goals that you can actually never really get to. Hmm. Um, uh, There's a huge amount of enthusiasm in Glasgow for stopping warming at 1.5 degrees, so-called high ambition coalition. The United States is a member of the high ambition coalition. It's easy to be a member of the high ambition coalition. It's like being a member of G fans. You don't have to do very much. You get to go to good parties. Everyone likes you. But it's a collective goal. It's not an individual goal. So if you're in the 1.5 degree club, you, know, you want 1.5 degrees to be the goal, it, that doesn't mean that you've agreed to then go out tomorrow and start making rapid cuts in emissions such that your emissions are you know, half guaranteed to be 50% lower by 2030 and guaranteed to be net zero by mid-century, probably faster because the climate has been warming uh, so quickly that 1.5 is probably beyond our reach. But that's totally misses the point. Point is this is a, this is a best efforts kind of regime where, or a pledge and review regime, where right. the goals are courageable, and the goals are always going to be more ambitious than uh, collectively than the individuals are going to do, and that's not a sign of failure. It's it's a sign that the goals are like a star, like the North Star, guiding, okay guiding the process. And so, th- thus, it's easy to say, you know, we're not going to do enough in time to meet the goal of one point five degrees, because by structure. We're not going to meet the goal of one point five degrees. Long time ago, before, way before Paris, Charlie Kell and I wrote a paper about how we weren't going to meet the goal of two degrees. Hmm. And you know, we got a huge amount of hate mail. Everyone hated the paper. <laughs> Why we so, so pessimistic? Let's be realistic about what our, our goals are and just recognize that this is a political process. And so, the goal, there always will seem to be a degree of pessimism, but that's the wrong way to measure progress. The right way, the way in my view, is to look at what did we think were the baseline projections ten years ago, right? And where are we now? 10 years ago, the baseline projections were for something on the order of five degrees, maybe six degrees of warming, you know, plus or minus, huge amount of warming. So much warming, you didn't actually know how to calibrate the models. Now, I think we're close. We're just probably three degrees, a little under three degrees uh, for our baseline. Um, and that's going to require a lot of effort, but a lot of effort's happening. For 2100. You for 2100. So right. three degrees is a huge amount of climate change. That's not good, but it's less than five. And right. that's nice. okay. the measure of progress. And we're going to keep bringing those, those curves down. And the only way we're going to do it is not by some kind of blind uh, subscription to the technological messiah. It's going to come from a lot of different technologies that make it possible to have a lot of different businesses. And then you're going to have the financiers financing those businesses, not financing the other businesses, shutting down coal plants, on right. and on and on. Right. And it's going to be a marriage of technology and policy.
0: Okay. Well, One last question on the technology. Uh, which is we didn 't raise it, you didn 't raise it either, uh, which is the the issue which has is seemingly come back onto the um, active calendar of fusion technology um, and nuclear fusion. I mean, where do you see that because you know for a for a number of years now, people have said, nah, you know, forget it, we just we, we can't get we can 't get the technology, it just doesn 't work. But now a lot of money is going into this sector where before people were poo pooing. So where are we on, on nuclear fusion? Well, there's been a lot of technological improvement, in particular around magnetic confinement
1: and some other te- techniques. Right, so, right. I mean, the joke among the fusion—I'm not a fusion physicist. I'm not a physicist. I don't even play one on TV. But my friends in in nuclear physics have have always joked, of course, that that fusion was the f- technology of the future and always will be uh, now i don't think that joke holds necessarily um, there's a handful of startups a lot of news around some uh f- f- financing just in the last few days for for one of those um they seem to be based around the idea more or less around the idea that that there's been enough advance in confinement uh, which is a combination of improvements in magnetics, improvements in system control, a variety of other things. And now I'm at the outer edge of what I can really speak about, even partially knowledgeably. And that means that smaller um, uh, uh, fusion reactors look to be viable. Will it happen? I have no idea. I mean, we should not you know, go out and consume all the fusion Kool-Aid tomorrow, but we should probably consume a little more of it than we were consuming we were assuming previously. And that's the whole, that's, that's why this is so the technological dimension to this story is so important is everything, almost everything that's really transformative is steeped in uncertainty and essentially unknowable in the beginning. And so you have to work across multiple fronts. And the more you take that challenge seriously, the more you realize that the technologies you're working on are often not the things you'd expect. So for example, there's been a lot of progress in improving batteries and, and the thermal control and batteries, because thermal runaway, you know, Okay. explosion, uh, batteries, big is one of the big risks. And so there's been a lot of progress in that, thanks to progress um, in, in uh, nanoparticles, advanced materials, fibers, and so on, areas that are totally outside what we think normally think of as energy science. And, and so that's, that's a sign that the problem is serious enough that people are, who would otherwise work on different problems are now working on. The
0: are now, okay. Okay. Uh, Last question, then. The decision at uh, COP26 was, in fact, uh, to come back and do a stock taking not four or five years from now, but next year, Um, in fact. uh, Where are they meeting? Spain? They're meeting in Egypt. Egypt, sorry. Yes. Africa. Africa. yeah, that's right. Uh, so the question, I guess, is how do we read this data, this decision to come back next year? Is it glass half empty or glass half full by by the declaration to return in, in 12 months rather than you know four or five years?
1: Well, so the, the, the vision has always been to have an annual COP. We actually the
0: only year we missed sure. was
1: the pandemic was was last year, so we skipped the year. Um, the original vision from Paris was you get an update on the pledges, which is what was needed by this, this cop here, cop 26, five years or five cops after, after Paris, right. Right. then with the updated pledges, you can do a stock take. So that'll be next year. But in addition to that, they made an unanticipated decision to invite people, invite countries to go to make additional pledges. Right. My own view is that we've got a lot of pledging going on. <laughs> the problem is not pledging. Um, The problem is credibility this is a pledge based system of cooperation we see this we've seen many of these in arms control and economic a lot of areas where there's a lot of uncertainty there's a there's a willingness to do something nobody really knows what to do and so the mechanism of cooperation is pledges rather than binding centralized agreements because you don't know enough to write a meaningful binding centralized agreement so that's what you got here is it one has here Mm -hmm. with paris and now with the the demonstration with the re-upping of the pledges as a result of glasgow but every pledge-based system of cooperation its success hinges on the credibility of the pledges and so frankly i'm concerned about the obsession with more and more pledges mm-hmm. and with in the lack of attention relative lack of attention to mechanisms for assessing credibility and I don't think those mechanisms for assessing credibility are going to come from the formal intergovernmental process because it requires consensus for its procedures and consensus. For right. It's going to come from the outside. And I think I find it very encouraging. You've got a bunch of NGOs, Climate Action Tracker, a lot right. of other groups. You've got a bunch of academics. Three or four papers have just come out in the last month and a half looking at all these different pledges, lots of different techniques. Lots of different models, and so the, the the evidentiary basis and the analytical techniques needed to assess the credibility of pledges is now emerging very rapidly, and it will emerge outside the formal climate regime and speak to the climate regime rather than emerging inside the climate regime and speak out to the world.
0: So, so in effect, accountability is going to come from outside the uh, the Paris Climate Accord.
1: I, I I think that's I think that's exactly right. In arms control, this is called verification. Uh, studiously it's not called verification here. And I think probably for good reasons because you know these are these are these are non-binding voluntary pledges. And so governments, especially governments that take their international obligations seriously, don't want to make pledges that they think then are going to be held to strict verification. Because what you want to do is encourage, you don't want to, you don't want people uh, lowest common denominator, but you want to encourage pledging activity that leads to experimentation, to ambition, to efforts to push the frontier, knowing that you might fail. And so if you fail, or at least fail in some sectors and not other sectors, then you're not going to meet your overall pledge, but that's not a sign of weakness of the system, it's a sign that the system is trying.
0: Okay. I really want to thank you, David, for uh, taking the time to sit down with us and talk about uh, COP26 and and technology and so forth. It's a real pleasure to have you back, and uh, thank you very much for being with us for this time.
1: Well, what a great joy to talk with you, Alan. Always a pleasure.